16 and 17, and then 19. And those speeches are interspersed with speeches from his three companions, from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And I'm going to suggest that Job's mind in this section is wrestling with two big questions. First, he wants somehow to have his day in court. He wants a person-to-person confrontation with God so that he can have an argument about the injustice of his situation. That's the first point. Job wants an argument about justice. But he also grapples with the question of death. Now, at first sight, the question of justice and the question of death, these questions might seem unrelated, but in fact, they are intertwined. So in his first speech, Job wrestles with these two questions. In his second speech, he comes to some conclusions about each one in isolation. And then in the final speech, he puts the two points together. So that's how we're going to tackle this material. We will largely ignore the speeches made by the three companions because they're so irritating. Deliberately so, I think. So let's get underway by reading some verses from chapter 13. You may want to keep the text open in front of you if you have a Bible, because I will be quoting from it regularly as we move through the section. So firstly, we'll turn to chapter 13, some scattered verses. Chapter 13, verse 3. I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And then verses 18 and 19. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Verses 22 and 23. Summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Now you can see from those verses that Job wants to have his day in court. He sincerely believes that he is the victim of terrible injustice. Now he would never pretend that he was perfect, of course, but he was a good and righteous man. We know that. He treated other people well. And so this deluge of pain and loss that has swept over his life is simply unjust. His three companions have done their best to convince him that he must have done something wicked because they all believe in what we might call the doctrine of karma. According to that Hindu concept, all suffering is a form of atonement. In other words, if you suffer, you must have committed a sin, either in this life or in a previous incarnation. Karma is not a god in Hindu thought. It's like a great moral equation which dishes out punishment uh, in response to sin. And you find that same thinking at the start of John chapter 9 when we encounter the man born blind. Jesus is asked, did this man sin or his parents sin? Neither, replies the Lord Jesus. Christianity has no truck with karma. It is an utterly ruthless doctrine. Instead, Job clearly believes that God is a personal moral being. He believes that he lives in a moral universe. And so he wants to appear in the divine court to present his case. But immediately, Job sees a massive problem with this quest. After all, he's just a little mortal. Let's let's cast our eyes to verses 24 and 25 of chapter 13. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? He's talking to God here. Will you torment a wind-blown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? 
if the evolutionists are right, then you're just a windblown leaf that's fallen off the evolutionary tree. You're of no more significance than a little bit of chaff. Remember that Job wants a person-to-person encounter with God, but it's not enough to conclude that God is a person. Job must first convince himself that he is a person. In chapter 25, Bildad is going to call him a maggot. Yeah, it's nice to have friends. So suffering raises this profound question about our personhood. What sort of thing are you? If death is nothing more than a rearrangement of atoms, then a confrontation between you and God is as likely as an argument between Einstein and a puddle. Let's turn now to chapter 14. We'll read a few verses from this chapter. First, uh, verses 7 through 10. And Job, he's thinking about death here, and he says, at least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. In verses 21 and 22 of that chapter, he's even more bleak. Talking of the dead, he says, If their children are honored, they do not know it. If their children are brought low, they do not see it. They feel but the pain of their own bodies and mourn only for themselves. Now that makes Samuel Beckett seem like a Disney cartoon. But somewhere in all this mental wrestling, a daring possibility enters into Job's mind. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 14, verses 14 through 15. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Now, at this stage in his thinking, the possibility of life after death is nothing more than a a sliver of light uh, in an ocean of darkness. But when we move to the second speech, which we're now going to record it in chapter 16 and 17, we will discern more light entering into this man's tortured soul. In chapter 16, Job was back wrestling with the question of having his day in court. He wants to confront God and plead his case. He wants to argue about justice. But his suffering is so intense that by this stage, he now regards, regards God as his enemy. Now, I'm going to take the time uh, to read th- three sections from chapter 16 because the force of the words is really shocking. Chapter 16, verse 9. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. Verse 12. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. We know from chapter 1 that Job has been attacked by a pitiless enemy. Satan has torn at Job in anger, crushing him without pity. Now, Job doesn't yet realize the cosmic warfare that is going on. He won't grasp that until God speaks to him out of the storm at the end of the book. So the poor man thinks that this violent enemy who is attacking him is God himself. He had no idea that God's eyes were full of tears as he watched his dear servant hold on to faith as the evil one fired his flaming arrows. 
Yes, God took responsibility for all that Job went through, but God was not Job's enemy. God was using Job to win a cosmic argument, and he was fiercely proud of his servant's stubborn refusal to curse God and die. Now, Job didn't know any of that at that stage, but he has become aware of another figure on the scene, a mysterious presence in his life who is on his side. Look at verse 19 through to 21. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. <laughs> Who is this mysterious friend? The one Job describes as his witness in heaven, his advocate and high, his intercessor and friend. Job may be a mere man, but this unseen advocate pleads on behalf of a man with God. Job only had a fraction of the light that we have uh, as New Testament believers. The Apostle John tells us explicitly, he says, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right at this moment, my suffering brother or sister, our Lord is praying for you, interceding for you that your faith will not fail. Even when everyone seems to have turned against you, you have a friend. You may be a little scrap of clay, a mere human being, but Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. We used to sing a hymn which has the verse, we have a hope that is steadfast and certain, gone through the curtain and touching the throne. We have a priest who is there interceding, pouring his grace on our lives day by day. In the second half of his second speech, this is in chapter 17, Job's earlier arguments about death now draw to a conclusion. He now sees clearly that there is no hope in life if death is the end. So using logic alone, Job sees that if life is to have any justice or any meaning for that matter, there must be life after death. Now let's read chapter 17, verses 13 to 16. And I have to warn you, this is chilling poetry. If the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in the realm of darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? If you're not a Christian, my friend, here today, then those words of Job must terrify you. Unless you have the imagination of a lump of rock. Where is your final home going to be? Will it be under six feet of soil? What about family? Who will your family be in the end? Weevils and worms? Will they be your brothers and sisters? Contrast that with the words of the Lord Jesus in John 13. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I mentioned Mary of Bethany earlier, and she was so hurt at the apparent heartlessness of Christ when he did not arrive in time to prevent Lazarus from dying. Now, what was Jesus doing 
in that episode. He could easily have healed Lazarus from a distance. As most of you know, Jesus, when he arrives, stands beside Mary at the tomb of her brother, and he weeps with her. And she knew in that moment that God was not heartless or cruel. The pain she had endured was necessary if she was to learn a really deep lesson. Jesus then raises Lazarus from the dead. He demonstrated that he was the resurrection and the life. And so, if you like, he pans the camera back. He forces Mary and her sister to view life in its proper context because death is not the end. There is life after death. Astonishingly, over a thousand years before Jesus stood beside Mary, the man called Job discovered the same truth. Our final reading is from his third speech, recorded in chapter 19. We're going to read verses 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now these verses bring the two great questions Job has been wrestling with together. The mysterious figure he earlier called his advocate is now revealed to be his kinsman redeemer. And because of the redeemer's work, Job knows that he will be raised from the dead, not as some amorphous spirit, but as a real flesh and blood man, a man with a resurrected body. And he shall see God. And so his desire for a meeting with God is fulfilled. His fear that death might be the end is assuaged. Now these verses are so laden with Christian theology that critical scholars have thrown everything they can at them. They've done their best to explain them away. Now, it is true that there are some translation difficulties with a few of the words, but it remains reasonable to interpret them as I have done for two main reasons. First, the term kinsman redeemer is used of God himself in other parts of the Old Testament. And in the context of Job's story, it would be ridiculous to think that Job was placing all his existential hopes in some uncle or cousin. And he certainly wouldn't insist that this minor family member's assistance be engraved in stone. Even critical scholars who argue against the term redeemer offer up the term vindicator, which matches directly with the mysterious advocate we met in the divine court earlier. The second reason why we shouldn't jettison the original rendering is that all critical scholars have a philosophical objection to any hint of resurrection in the Old Testament. It's just a presupposition for them. It's an article of faith. But of course, there are signs and allusions to resurrection all through the Old Testament. Just think of the book of Daniel. So when this text in Job is read canonically, it makes perfect sense to read it as a description of resurrection. Scholars who shake their heads at that statement do so because they are wedded to the idea that the concept of resurrection developed very late, and Job is very, very early. But that argument is entirely circular. I assume that the Bible isn't inspired. It's just a collection of evolving religious and political texts. So whenever I encounter something that disagrees with my assumption, then I discard it because my assumptions cannot be challenged. It's a ridiculous way to argue. Now, even if you know nothing about Hebrew words, surely we can all agree that Job's no, Job knows he is saying something really profound here 
In many ways, it is the emotional climax of the book. It's the theological high point of it. He has seen this shaft of blinding light, and he wants it to be recorded for all time. It's not enough to engrave it in lead. His words need to be chiseled into stone. They are so important. So scholars who will try to convince us that Job is grateful to an uncle for helping him overcome a skin disease are simply revealing their atheistic prejudices. Now, I want to conclude this brief study with some pastoral applications. I'm going to suggest two principles that we can each apply to times when we are called to suffer. The first principle is to frame your situation in its eternal context. Death is not the end. If death is the end, then Camus was right. Life is a sick joke. I can think of believers whose lives have been imprisoned by their dedication to a seriously disabled relative. Daily life is a constant grind. All the blessings of life that we take for granted, you know, a meal in a restaurant, a, a weekend break in Barcelona, a last-minute decision to go for a drive up the North Coast. I know people who have been deprived of a normal life like that, and their relentless, selfless service never seems to trigger gratitude. Or think of someone who has lived every day with OCD or clinical depression. Their minds have been a dark and desolate landscape for decades. Now, here's the point. If death is the end, suffering has no meaning. But Christianity says that this old fallen world is a bit like a training ground. God uses it with all its sorrows and deprivations to build capacities into our lives that will shine for all eternity. And it is that perspective which can fortify the elderly believer who must grit their teeth and face up to the indignities of old age or the fear of dementia. The best is yet to be, my brother or sister. This veil of tears is only temporary. In your flesh, you will one day see God, and you will meet your advocate, your kinsman redeemer, face to face. The second principle is that suffering is not your fault. Now, in some specialized cases, God will use suffering as a form of discipline. He may even take us off the pitch for an early bath if we continuously misbehave. But those cases only refer to Christians who have sin for which they have never repented and stubbornly refused to repent. So they're specialized cases. So if you're suffering today and that's not the case, remember this is not your fault. In the end, God was intensely proud of his servant. Have you considered my servant Job, he asks? There is no one on the earth like him. So perhaps you've been called to suffer in some way. Maybe you've been betrayed or abandoned. And it looks as if your life is such a mess that the thing is unfixable. But like Job, you hold on. With grim determination, with teeth clenched, you refuse to abandon your faith in God, even when it feels as if he is your enemy. Well, perhaps God Almighty is looking down at you from heaven, and he gives a slight nudge to the archangel Michael. Do you see her, Michael? He asks. I have no one on earth like her. Death is not the end. So frame your suffering in its eternal context. And don't assume that your suffering is your own fault. 
You can make God proud if you will but hold on to faith. Next week, we will see how Job uses the insights he has gained here to draw conclusions about the character of God, that God is indeed wise and just. And then in our final study, we will hear God explain to Job why the world is so complicated and messy. But for now, we're done. We'll have a final hymn, Ryan, and then a closing prayer.